Welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and joining me today, it's Paul Verostek. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing good, Renee. Thanks for having me back on the show. So Paul's probably a familiar name to most people, but if you don't know, Paul is the owner and operator at AirborneSound.com, and he also runs CreativeFieldRecording.com, one of the kind of most thoughtful and prolific audio blogs that's out there. I, I love a lot of what you do, and you know, when you put something out, you don't just like drop a couple of sentences on us. You give us entire documents and dissertations when it comes out. And so I always, I'm always excited when I see an Airborne Sound thing come out and a, and a Creative Field Recording thing come out. Thanks, Renee. It makes me happy. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> so what we're talking about today is we're talking about equipment and gear. The Mix Pre 3 and the Mix Pre 6 just came out. I got myself a Mix Pre 3 and I got it in my hands. And you were the first person I thought of with regards to wanting to have a conversation about gear and about these devices in particular, and also about kind of the philosophy of, of what people should think of as they, as they consider what their first purchase should be, what their next purchase should be, mm -hmm. you know, how they, how they go about building their kit up from nothing and how about they go about building their kit from what it is today into what they want it to be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, and I just know you're such a thoughtful, almost philosophical person with regards to, to the way that you approach all kinds of things that, that I felt like you were really the, the guy to talk to on that. So oh, thanks. I'm excited. Thanks. Me too. So let's start with the, with the little mixed pre devices that came out. So, you know, I remember... I guess a few months back, tweeting out to at sound devices, hey guys, if you would put out a mix pre with the built-in SD card, I would buy the heck out of that thing. And like two weeks later, the mix pre three came out. I remember that three. tweet. Yeah. It was, I thought, what's going on here? <laughs> I was just guessing. And then I tweeted them back and, and they were like, yeah, we, we remembered you. <laughs> so Excellent. I'm sure they, they saw that coming and, they, and who knows how long they had this on the pipeline. I need to get a sound devices person on, on this podcast at some point, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's kind of, it's everything I was hoping for and more with regards to it being a great little mixer that can also record. Mm -hmm. So which one have you had your hands on? Did you get the three or the six? I have a six. I originally, I was in Toronto getting some gear repaired at a shop called True Audio. And I saw the Mix Pre there, uh, the Mix Pre 6, and they said, just take it for the weekend. Why don't you give it a spin? Bring it back on Monday. Just make sure it's not destroyed and we're all happy. And I tried it out and I thought, thought it was amazing. So about two or three weeks after that, more stock came in because I guess the first wave sold out pretty quickly. And uh, I picked up uh, the Mix Pre 6 and I've had it about a week and a half now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what went into your decision to go the six over the three? Well, so I originally had for the longest time out of Sound Devices 722, and I really love the build quality of the 722 on uh, just Sound Devices in general and the preamps, of course. But I felt it was showing its age a little bit with like the FireWire 400 interface, which is a little bit of a hassle. It used an old style of interior hard drive. And you know, I had been lugging that thing around Southeast Asia for the last couple of years. And I, I mean, they're small, relatively speaking to like older gear. It's just like the size of a, a hardcover book, I guess. But after a while, it kind of adds up. And so I was looking for something a little bit smaller. And I also wanted the two additional channels. So not only, I think the six goes up to one, 192 kilohertz. So I wanted that. That's correct. And I wanted, I kind of had an idea that it would be nice to roll two stereo pairs in some situations. I normally just roll stereo, but I thought the flexibility would be would be cool to have just in case my kit grows over time. 
And for not that much more, it would be kind of the path I wanted to take. So when you, once you got it in your hands, what kind of field tests did you take it out on? What was, uh, what was the first fire you threw it in? Well, uh, the past month I've been going to racetracks. So I went to a drag strip, actually, and I was recording a whole bunch of dragsters just ripping out. And I thought, I'm going to test limiters on this thing. I'm going to see how hard I can push it. And it did really, really well. So I've been back two or three times to that drag strip and also did some stock car racing as well. So those have been my first experiences about maybe four sessions so far. Not that long, but long enough to know that it, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. Really like it. My first thing was, I guess I just went and did some Foley in my mm-hmm. backyard. So, you know, I just uh, took a 416 and a couple of CM3s mm-hmm. and threw some wood around and creaked some other stuff and did some dirt and that kind of stuff. And met my expectations with regards to that as far as you know getting texture and everything exactly just so and honestly on once i kind of got stuff back in post especially with the more kind of detailed textury mm-hmm. things i was just thoroughly impressed with these preamps i don't know what they did different the only thing i really know is the name of it but man I, it's just they might sound better than the seven series priest you know what i kind of found the same thing like i'm a huge fan of the 722 preamps like of course but when i start to compare it i did some ab's between the 722 and the mix pre 6 it almost sounds like the preamps on the mix pre they almost kind of sound a little bit more crisp and a little bit more clean too i don't know exactly what it is but um really really pleased and as you mentioned like with the the detail and the texture so like when the dragsters were taking off, of course, the, the engines would have like this rippling kind of sound to it. And it was just so crisp and textured, really, really worked out. So I noticed that difference too. It's it's a weird thing because you're sitting there going, I mean, those those seven series pre's are tried and true. They're burnt into your brain. You know what they sound like. You know, a lot of us have been recording with those pre's for a lot of years and through a whole lot of sessions. Mm-hmm. And it feels weird for me to have a $650 box in my hand going, hey, this this might sound better. But I think it does. Now, you had a, a 633 as well that you use sometimes. Didn't you have a 6 Series too? Yeah. So basically at the office at, at Dallas Audio Post, I have access to our rental department there. Mm. So in the rental department, we have 744, 788, 633, and a 552. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got, uh, you know, a lot of the sound devices line. The 633 is still probably my preferred device to take out in any given situation mm-hmm. just for ergonomics. That, that device is just laid out and thought out in a way that I work. <laughs> like that box and me are on the same wavelength. So why did you pick up uh, a Mix Pre 3? So I picked up a Mix Pre for my personal rig, right? Mm-hmm. So again, I have access to the 633 at the office, mm-hmm. but there's a difference between equipment that you have access to at work and equipment that you own yourself. And some of that difference is the equipment that I own, I always have at the ready, right? So it's at my house, it's in my office. If I want to, on a whim, on a weekend, roll out with and go catch something, if an ice cream truck rolls by the front of my house, I've got my own gear. I don't have to go to work and I'm going to miss the ice cream truck. And there's a lot of value in having a certain amount of personal equipment, personal gear that you own that is separate from equipment you might have access to at work. Mm -hmm. 
So that's kind of why I did it. You know, my, my home rig up to that point had been a pair of the original mix pre uh, mixers. So, you know, they were the full analog path all the way through with the optical limiters, just stereo mixers. And then basically just running out of that into a Sony recorder. So either the uh, D50 or the M10. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was kind of my rig. And then, you know, when I'm at the office, yeah, I can roll the 788 and the Sheps out there and, you know, <laughs> take that to that level when, you know, when I have that level of prep and need to have happen. So it's just, uh, I guess, a different, um, different use, different headspace. For sure. But I wanted to bring my personal rig up a little bit, right? Because what I found was that running the mix pre into literally a rubber banded together <laughs> M10, like I put a rubber band on it to attach it to the thing. And it just felt, it started to feel a little janky. I mean, it sounded great. I could make good recordings with it, but I started to really want more bulletproof construction of the entirety of the rig. And I wanted better ergonomics for my own personal rig. So when this thing came out, I was, I was in it in a heartbeat. I immediately put one of those mixed pre's up on eBay, sold that sucker, you know, pulled some other money, you know, together and, you know, jumped in. So that's exactly what I did. Like when I, I can't remember whose message I saw on Twitter when they announced it, but I, I read all the specifications. Thought you know this is great touchscreen, four channels. It looks like really good interface, and I thought oh, you know this is going to be two grand, you know twenty two hundred or something like that. And then I see it's under a thousand dollars. I'm like I'm first not, I'm getting that. Like that's mine. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so it's like really good value. Yeah, and it's and it's funny too because you know as I've worked with it. So the couple other things I've recorded, I went and uh, just randomly Googled um, a Tyco drum group in my city. Cool. You know, because I was recording a, an audio book in Spanish for kids, and uh -huh. it was about drummers. And we got to the Tyco drum section of the book, and I was and I just kind of stopped editing for a second and just said, I wonder if there's a Tyco drum group around me somewhere. So I Googled it up and uh, and found him, and I had emailed him, this person and gotten a response like before I finished editing this little children's book. <laughs> like I was like, we're good to go on Sunday. So, so I went and recorded their rehearsal. And for that rehearsal, I brought my SM7B and a pair of Line Audio CM3s and the Mix Pre and that was it. And I got some gold. It sounded no really good. Really? You know, and You know, we were in a rehearsal space. We weren't in a, a typical kind of hall that you would do a giant, you know, taiko drum in. So it was a little tubby, but that was the, that was the fault of the room more so than any of the, the equipment. And, you know, once I kind of EQ'd some of the tubbiness out, I mean, I got some, I got a very unique taiko recording because it's so dry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got a, you know, a lot of the taikos that you get in libraries, they're just drenched, you know? Yeah. And so I got a very kind of interesting, super, super dry Tyco performance from a, from a group of people. And, uh, that was fun. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it was cool. And then, you know, the other thing is, so one of my clients is the regional sports channel that's, that's down here, Fox Sports Southwest. And so high school football in Texas is, is upon us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And, and I'm about to get just laid out with about, you know, 15 high school football features here pretty soon on top of, you know, the college football when that hits wow. and then the NFL yeah. when that hits. Right. And so, you know, and I'm looking at my library kind of anticipating this going, you know, I need more football pads. I need more football fully and that type of thing. And so, you know, I talked to the guys and they went and talked to one of the coaches and they hooked me up with two sets of pads and two helmets. And so I got out at five in the morning last weekend, I think it was last weekend, and rolled an hour of, you know, just banging those pads against, you know, dirt and, you know, grinding them against dirt and running them against each other and oh, man. doing great. with the grunts, with grunts and without grunts so, <laughs> versus not, you know, and all of that. Oh, that's great. And I got just a whole stack of just gold. And so again, what I used was the Mix Pre 3, a pair of Line Audio CM3s, and the 416, mm-hmm. all of which is my personal equipment. But I'm just super, super happy with how it all came out and how it all came together. One thing that I've been finding with a three-channel recorder is because I have another pre there and another channel, I tend to put another mic up where I wouldn't if I didn't have that third channel. And it's affecting my recordings. It is impacting the final product, the end result of what I'm doing for sure. Just just by nature of having that tool in front of me. Now, in terms of workflow, I'm kind of curious. So you said before you'd use like an M10 and then you'd go like a mix pre into the M10. Do you find because you're using a a single box now that is kind of easier to work, like as far as like ergonomics are concerned and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because not only am I not having to kind of set two different gain stages, I'm also not having to wrestle two different power sources, you know, because I got to power the D50 and I got to power the mix pre and, you know, the mix pre would always run out of batteries before the D50, but still I end up swapping more batteries and kind of doing all of that. Mm-hmm. And on top of the fact that I'm not having to worry about that cable connecting the two devices together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those added up to just from an ergonomics perspective, I was like, even if it sounds, you know, exactly the same, I need to do it. It's interesting because, you know, we're quite lucky that we can record such high, de- high fidelity audio in general, right? With a couple of small boxes that are like, you know, slightly larger than a drink box, right? But yeah. when you take, when you make it even simpler, I, I find that even though the mix pre, it's smaller than the 722 and I've got four channels packed into it, I find that I'm working, working with the 722 was, was fine. There was no problem. But when I'm working with the mix pre and simpler gear, I'm able to focus more on performance, right? Yeah. You're not kind of like dealing with all these cables and all this other kind of junk, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, I like playing with that kind of stuff. But I also like keeping it as simple as possible so I can get a cool kind of sound effect that I can put myself into and it's got some performance that I've made an imprint on or affected in some way. You know what I mean? Where you're not dealing with with gear the whole time. Well, I will say the one other thing that kind of comes up though is that this is my first device that's got the Bluetooth in it that where I can roll the wingman app, right? Huge, yeah. And so what happens is, you know, yeah, I'm not wrestling cables anymore, but I'm still kind of, you know, thinking about metadata and, and you know, import, importing stuff, you know, while stuff is rolling. That's so, true. you know, as, as one thing kind of frees from my brain, I can fill it with another thing pretty quick. <laughs> you know what? That's actually a really good point. When I was at the track, I mean, there's certain places where I could work and, you know, people wouldn't see the microphone and freak out, but then there's other places where I'd have to be a little bit more discreet. I thought, oh, I'm going to try the Wingman app, and it worked really well, but I do find, I'm sure it's different 
for doing production sound on set. But when field recording, I found personally, I was, I was focusing more on my phone, just kind of like what you're saying, right? Yeah. And I think while it's very helpful to monitor, especially in stealth, I got to take my eyes off that thing and focus on what's going on around, around as well. Like it's really nice to have the Bluetooth. It's a really nice asset, but like you say, you can get sucked into that as well. Yeah. Just to spell it out for people that aren't familiar with it, the Wingman app. Uh, so basically it's a, it's an app that you have on your phone, talks via Bluetooth to the mix pre. It shows you all the meters and it shows you all the metadata. So you can, while a take is recording, jump into the metadata and start typing in take notes as, the, as mm-hmm. that take continues to go. Mm-hmm. So I definitely found myself doing that with the Tyco group because every so often you'd be like, oh, this is a good take. But I would try and limit myself to that where I would kick it open, tell it's a good take and do the whole thing. It's all, you can also you know run the transport so you can record and you can stop from your Bluetooth, which is really, really nice in like stealth situations. So mm-hmm. you know I had an intention to go out and record a big rally yesterday. I didn't end up doing it. But when I put my rig together, what my plan was, was to basically have the mix pre and all the wires and all the cabling in a backpack and uh, have the mics up still in a pistol grip, you know, but if I wanted to roll totally stealth, I could, and I could control start and stop from my phone. Um, mm-hmm. So if you want to go utterly stealth with this thing, you totally can just by not controlling it directly from the device, which is nice for sure. Very nice. Yeah. Actually, the first time I went out to the track, I pulled up a pair of headphones and I kind of had the gear out there and they came up to me and they're like, are you from the ministry? You know, I, I think they wanted to know whether I was, you know, there was going to be like environmental problems because it was too loud. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's one of those things. If they see you working, right, it could affect the f- performance. It could affect what you're doing. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try the wingman. And then after that, there's no, there's no problem, right? They don't really get called out for doing that kind of thing, right? Yeah, so you exactly. can work a little bit more easily, so. What are there any kind of quirks, quibbles, things that you're that you're not loving about the mix pre as you as you've run through it a couple of times, the newer ones, the threes and the six? Mm, so for me personally, the workflow of having isolated tracks and then mixing it down. Of course, the seven two two wasn't like that. It was just you record two tracks and that's it. So when you're in advanced mode of the mix pre, so there's two modes. There's a basic mode, which is just basic, basically plug and play. I think it can do 4824. I don't think it can do the limiters, uh, but it, ha- it has certain limitations. But if you go to advanced mode, you have many more options on what you how you can record. However, when you do that, the front panel gain knob doesn't affect what you're actually recording. Yeah, it's a fader. It's not a preamp. Yeah, that's correct. Correct. And then the gain knob is actually on the side underneath the headphone jack yeah right behind that little kind of bar so it's it's really tricky to get at so that takes a little bit of getting used to i think i've kind of got it down now as far as like workflow is concerned there's a workaround oh is that right yeah instead of going into advanced mode you go into custom mode and then in custom mode you dumb the uh the knobs back down so on your you set your record back to basic and then your knobs work as praise again Uh, Okay, I'll have to try that. That's great. It just made my life easier. It's a quirk of the devices being this tiny that there's less stuff that's available as buttons and switches. Mm. And, you know, that was something that I always kind of appreciated out of sound devices stuff, as opposed to like Zaxcom stuff. Zaxcom stuff has always been very kind of touchscreeny. And so, you know, with, with the Zaxcom gear, 
you know, you tend to kind of dig into menus and set it all up. And people, some people really, really like that, but I, I much preferred having buttons and switches to do things like kick on high pass filters and phantom power and all that kind of stuff. You know, obviously mm -hmm. those things are physical devices and so they make things more expensive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these devices, you know, you started with really with the 633, but, but definitely moving forward into the Mix Pro 3 and the Mix Pro 6, they're much more menu driven, much more touchscreeny, much less buttony. And the fact that they really, really, I understand why they went with the advanced mode and the basic yeah. mode. I get it because I would definitely tell any videographer out there, if you're still recording with a zoom, you're doing it wrong. Go get the mix pre and you're good. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, just leave that sucker in basic mode and you, you you're won't mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Totally. Yeah. For, for people like us though, it's a little more complex because they end up making a lot of compromises to serve that specific market with the same device. So definitely, I found when I when I pulled the thing out of the box, it took me a minute to really wrap my head around what my workflow needs to be with this thing. And you really do have to spend time with the menus. And you basically, the pro audio folks have to go and set up the custom mode and decide, mm -hmm. you know, kind of what they're, you know, leaving as advanced and putting back to basic. And, you know, mm -hmm. most people mm -hmm. will, they'll just put the record inputs on basic and, and put everything else back to advanced. And that's kind of a, a good default for, for people that are pro, because I mean, just the fact that they went all the way down to using the headphone knob as the preamp inside of a menu is as a default on your, on the advanced side. It's just, I would question that decision. <laughs> yeah. That, it's, it's, it's a little bit cumbersome. Now, if you're uh, more comfortable with using switches, like actual physical switches, how has it been for you so far using that touchscreen? It's been fine. I have kind of narrow feminine fingers <laughs> so <laughs> you know i don't have any problem getting around that thing i'm sure if i had fatter fingers it would be uh, more sure. problematic because the touchscreen is really small it's probably what two you know an inch tall by two inches wide it's tiny yeah, it's, it's quite small um, but it's designed i mean they, they designed the interface in such a way that it's it's not difficult at all for me to navigate mm -hmm. the one mm -hmm. difficulty is the fact that because they designed it for fingers you can only put so much on the screen at any one time, which means there are certain functions that live under menus and it's not obvious which menu those functions live under. True, true. For example, yeah. you know, finding your headphone setup, it's just not super clear and, you know, formatting cards, you know, you just kind of have to develop some muscle memory as to what lives under what in that menu because, you know, because the screen's so small, they can't tell you, they can't show you. Exactly, and, yeah. It took, it took a little bit of time for me to kind of find my way around. I think, I don't know, about two weeks now, and I've got it. I've got it down pretty good, but it does take a little bit of a ramp up to get there. Yeah, so it's like there are ergonomics improvements over the rig that I had, but there are definitely ergonomics compromises, especially compared to again, like the six three three, which has almost no ergonomics compromises. It does mm. have the tiny knobs for the channels four, five, and six. Right, right. Yeah, you know, that one's that one's not utterly uncompromised. It's got some compromises too, but but mm. far fewer than. The, the newer Mix Pre 3 and 6 do. With that said, once you kind of work out your setup, and they did at least kind of thoughtfully set up presets to where once you have a workflow kind of going and so, and you know, I've got a preset labeled basically that is for my CM3s and, you know, mic X that goes with it mm -hmm. um, that I find really useful. And then, you know, once the preset's in place and I'm up and running, then all of a sudden my ergonomics are fine. I'm great. Yeah, so now, you know, I did run into an issue just now for this podcast because I'm recording into this into the device right now, monitoring back audio from it. But for some reason, I'm having trouble making it talk 
<laughs> to my computer the right way. Hmm. And so, you know, there's just, it might just me being, being dumb, but I don't know, there's USB menu stuff hidden in places that, you know, I'm still digging around for too. I, I haven't even gone there yet. So when you find out, let me know. <laughs> so this is kind of a good spot to, to kind of move to a broader, broader kind of discussion about when you're evaluating your gear and you're trying to figure out, all right, what's the next thing I need to get mm-hmm. from a philosophical, from a, um, from a practical standpoint also, you know, what do people need to be thinking about as they kind of decide, all right, what's the next thing I need? What's the next piece? Like, how do you evaluate your kit as a beginner or as an intermediate? How do you evaluate the gear that you have and figure your need so that you can not buy things too many times over and over again? I, th- I think that's a really good question. And it's it's a hard question to answer because, of, of course, everybody records different things and they go about it a different way. I would say the first thing that comes to mind is considering the kind of subjects you want to record. Because what I see from people that will, you know, read some articles on the blog and then they'll write and they'll say, you know, what do you think about this piece of gear? One of the major things that people become frustrated at is choosing gear that they think will work, but it ends up being too noisy. So I hear from a lot of nature field recordists that want to start with like an H5 or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they go out into the woods and they try and record and the preamps are just soaked with hiss, right? And and it's really hard to kind of get around that. So I would say, first of all, like an awareness of what you want to record and the limitations of the gear that's in your budget, I would say, right? Yeah. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to record nature field recordings on equipment, like you say, you know, an H5 or anything really under $1,000, maybe even under $2,000, because you need really, really clean components in the microphones and also the preamps as well. Now, something like the Mix Pre 3 and 6, they'll help with that, right? It's almost like they knocked $1,000 off any recorder that you could get that would be able to record that kind of stuff. But I would say that would definitely be one of the things. If you're more comfortable recording loud sounds like traffic, or cars, you're not going to necessarily be fighting with the preamp or the noise of the components to begin with. You've got a little bit more latitude. And that's why I always suggest for if you're starting out field recording, try and go for those things first. I know it's, it's a lot of fun to record nature sounds, but I see a lot of people getting frustrated because maybe they can't afford $3,000 worth of equipment, right? And who can when you start out? It's really expensive stuff, right? To get like a, a Sennheiser and and a sound devices, but then they go out into the woods and they try and record something and it, they just get discouraged. So to avoid that discouragement and kind of growing your craft and not giving up right away because you're so frustrated at noisy sound effects, I would say, okay, if you're going to upgrade your gear or you're thinking about buying gear, think realistically about what kind of subjects that you want to capture first. That, that would be my first tip. I think that's a really important point. I would add a little perspective for myself, which is, you know, somebody that's lived in the city for a long time. And you li- I don't know what part of Toronto you live in, but if you're in the middle of it, then you understand like, all the noise, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a noisy, noisy world out there. Mm-hmm. And what I've found for me personally anyway, and again, I'm not Gordon Hempton. I'm not out there recording, you know, loons that are, you know, three miles from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in my personal work, you know, in, in doing post work, you know, uh, I, I would say this to people doing, you know, game work and that kind of stuff. I find noise floor to never be an issue. It's never a consideration for me. 
because mm-hmm. the world is so damn noisy. What mm-hmm. is more important to me is polar pattern and transient response. Because the way that I'm going to mic something is I'm going to get the mic close enough to it in a lot of instances to where if there's noise in it, it's going to go into the context of a mix anyway. And so, you know, once you put something in the context of a mix, it's amazing how much noise you can get away with. The other thing that I would say is that a lot of the handheld recorders with built-in mics, the pre's Mm. are actually pretty clean. What's noisy are those electric condenser mics that are built onto the top of those devices, H5s, Uh, H6s, those types of things. If you took those electric condenser mics and ran them into a sound device as pre, they would still be noisy because the the noise is not coming from the pre, it's coming from the mics. And the same is true in the other direction. You run a 416 into an H5, it sounds beautiful. No kidding. It, it sounds stupid quiet too, because it's not the pre, it's the mic. So that's that's kind of another thing to consider too, especially on the lower end of the gear, is A, the noise is coming from the mic, mm-hmm. and B, it's a noisy world. And if you're recording stuff that's going to go in the context of a mix, it's not a thing anyway. It is amazing how much noise you can get away with in the context of a mix, especially for your own personal libraries. Now, if you're recording stuff to release, yeah, you know, you're going to have to go through some, some processes to really get it nice and kind of shiny and sparkly and make it sound good to, you know, other people that aren't you. But in the context of developing a tool set and just doing work, man, it's amazing how much noise I get away with on a daily basis with all of my recordings. See, that's really interesting. And I think also a beginner, let's say that they just think, oh, yeah, what's this cool thing, field recording, let's try it out. They won't know that, right? Like that's something you can only learn after, I mean, you're very experienced, right? And after years of experience, you'll know, okay, yeah, the noise really isn't necessarily an issue. And maybe if you're, there's going to be music in there and then dialogue and it's going to be uh, mixed, however, you can get away with a little bit more noise, but initially you may not know that, right? So right. I think that's fantastic advice. Well, you know, and the airplane is going to kill you more than the microphone self noise will. For sure. For sure. <laughs> you know, the traffic is going to kill you way more than that preamp is, you know, mm-hmm. in almost any situation. And so, mm-hmm. again, it's just a noisy world. And so when I recorded those football pads, I mean, I'm, I'm not in the studio, I'm out of my backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm in suburbia now. I'm not in the middle of the city anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not Washington National Forest. You know, it mm-hmm. is. It's there's traffic, there's distance traffic, and it's fine because I'm going to crank those things, and sometimes I'll throw distortion on them in the context of a mix and do all kinds of other stuff and make them sound huge. And it doesn't matter if there's noise on it. I think that's a really good point because uh, one stepping stone for people to overcome generally with field recording is frustration of capturing the proper effect because so many things can interfere with what you're recording so we're talking originally started talking about like components and preamps and things like that but as you mentioned like if there's a little bit of ambient traffic going on it's not a huge deal in the context of the entire project right i think it's very easy for beginners to think that they want absolute clinical purity to be successful and i would just hate to see whether it's because of gear or because of environmental issues that people become so discouraged that they stop field recording when they should just persevere and keep at it. It doesn't have to be absolutely perfectly clean. As you say, sound libraries might be a different a different matter, right? But I would just hate to see people become discouraged because of those kind of things. They should keep trucking away. Yeah. Well, even in the libraries, I mean, I've been known to leave a little bit of kind of ambient stuff on the echo collective stuff when it goes out there, you know, because I I would prefer that to be in there than any artifact from cleaning anything up. Well, there's that. And also, I mean, if you have a good performance, it's almost better to have a good, a good performance that's got a few errors in it than it is to, 
I mean, not have the performance at all, right? So Right. It, well, and the other thing is, in the context of the recording, so going back to the football pads, I mean, I'll come back to that because mm -hmm. I just did that. Um, sure, sure. But yeah. I, I have access to a studio in a super quiet booth, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I chose not to record the pads in the studio in a super quiet booth. The reason is, there's two reasons. A, because I wanted to rub them into some dirt and get mm -hmm. some grit and get some other stuff happening. And mm -hmm. B, because those football pads never get hit in the studio. That's not the sound I wanted. It wouldn't sound right, yeah. I wanted the sound of pads outside. I find the same thing is true with footsteps. A lot of the foot foley that I cut and use, I much prefer the stuff I record just out in the world on a quiet day than the stuff I might have laid down in the studio. It just sounds more real, sounds more natural, lays in fine, sounds great. You know, it's interesting. You said something, I don't know if it was on an earlier episode or a blog post that you did, but it always stuck with me. You said you can't take a picture yeah. and put it on. What is it again? I'm not going to say it right. You say it. If I take a close-up picture and move it across the room, that didn't turn it into a wide shot. Exactly. That's the one. It's the same thing for perspective and field recording, right? Like you can't take footsteps recorded in a studio and make them fit as well outside to match the picture as footsteps yeah. recorded naturally outside, right? So, And all this circles back to what you're talking about initially, which is consider the things that you're going to record, right? Mm -hmm. And give a lot of thought to what are you trying to build a kit to actually record, right? Mm -hmm. uh, are you trying to do prop fully? Are you trying to do vehicles? Are you trying to do nature ambiences? I mean, those are all very different things that require different types of kit. Absolutely. And the way you should think about it I think sometimes it's it's less about what it is and more about how it makes the sounds that it makes and how those sounds propagate out into the space, right? Mm. So when you're thinking about weapons, you know, weapons make sounds with explosions and with mechanical movements and those sounds mm. echo out into space. So mm. you need to develop a kit that can record explosions, concussive stuff, broad frequency spectrum, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Footsteps are totally different. Footsteps come from, you know, friction and impact, you know, of a human body kind of pushing down on the ground and they mm -hmm. don't really echo out too much. Mm -hmm. But you also have to consider people's perspective of footsteps is from their ears, which are five to six feet above the feet, way up here. True. <laughs> Absolutely. True. True. You know? So, you know, usually I split the difference. I'll cut them from about, you know, two or three feet away or something like that, but I don't get mm -hmm. right on it. And I'm not stressed about noise because you're all, you never have your ear down by somebody's feet unless you're in a real bad situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. True, true, true. Uh, something else came to mind while you're mentioning that if, you know, you're mentioning footsteps and, and then guns and the pads as well. And I think those could even go in three different categories, like footsteps. All you have to do is mic your feet, right? Pad takes a little bit more organization and then doing a firearm shoot is very advanced as far as like field recording technique yep. is concerned. And I think that's another thing to think of when you're choosing your gear as well is patience. You're not going to be able to record every subject right out of the gate. And I, I think it's great that many new field records want to do that. I'll sometimes get an email from someone. They say, okay, I'm going out this weekend. I want to record guns. It's the first field recording shoot I'm going to do. And I, you know what? I love that ambition. I think it's fantastic. But there's also nothing wrong with starting out with standard sound effects, let's say, and then working up to that. And I think sure. following your gear path so it goes along with that, because, I mean, it, it's always fun to record gunshots. And if you've got an H5, go for it, you know, if you want to, right? But it may require a little bit more time, a little bit more investment to get 
results that you're satisfied with as well. So I think upgrading gear along with the subjects that you record too is uh, something you consider. I, th- I think kind of along with that is just a recognition of the fact that the skill set that is field recording is something that develops over years and years and years and hours mm-hmm. and hours and hours and reps and reps, reps, just like anything else, just like mm-hmm. dancing, just like playing guitar, just like mm-hmm. anything else, drawing, right? So mm-hmm. you got to put hours in, mm-hmm. not only recording, but then taking the recordings back and doing something with them. You know, and you just have to do it over and over and over again before you decide if you even like this mic. <laughs> you True know? enough. Yeah. Well, and so like I had, you know, I had a very kind of checkered past with the with the four sixteen because you know in my initial few passes with the four sixteen, I, I wasn't using it in a way that flattered it, but I didn't know that mic very well, and so I decided in my head that I didn't like that mic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then later on, you know, some other people kind of insisted I use it on some other in some other situations. I did, and I was like, oh you know what? This mic does that thing really, really well. It gives me that kind of like bright splattiness. That's just beautiful. And actually it works great indoors, you know, in in situations that other mics don't work indoors, you know, but that was not my first recording with the 416. It took me probably 30 or 40 recordings with that 416 to really get my head wrapped around that one mic. That's so difficult for new people as well, right? Like how can they know what all this stuff sounds like, right? So you're thinking, first of all, I want to go out there and record some cool sounds. Like that's where it all starts, right? Yep. And then you see on blogs, you see on like B&H and Amazon, all these like, oh, like so many microphones. Like which ones do I, I mean, so overwhelming, right? To be able to even have the experience to know the difference between these microphones and the proper situations that you use them in. I mean, it's, it takes years, right? Yeah. How do you even know which gear to aspire to, right? How do you You know which gear you even think you want? You don't, (laughs) which is actually why I went to you and Timothy and I did the series, the month of field recorder series, right? Because I didn't, my first microphone that I got was the Neumann 191. And I love that thing. It sounded so rich and I didn't feel a need to move on past that for such a long time. I still have that thing. And so as a result, I didn't really dabble in too many other microphones. And so sometimes people would say, well, you know, Paul, what do you think about this? I'm like, I... I don't know. I, I've I've never tried that. So you and Timothy very kindly told me your thoughts as well as everyone else in that series on those microphones so that we could all learn from that. And so I think there's maybe greater knowledge now on what you can choose and there's sites with samples on them and things like that. But for the beginner, it's really, really difficult, I think, to choose something right off the bat and expensive too, right? Like you're, you're sinking thousands of dollars into something that will it work? You don't know, right? Do you want to waste that money? Do you want to take a risk and go with something different? Right. It's difficult. So a way to approach it, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. this is where we get into philosophy, right? Yes, it's difficult. So how do we navigate this difficulty? Mm -hmm. One way to approach it is to what I kind of do, which is to buy the kind of the bottom end thing, just to get yourself in the game with any particular piece of gear Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. get used to learning how to work it. And, you know, I'm more talking about specifically, like if we're talking about, say, Omni mics or contact mics or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. If it's a different style that you want to explore, you can just kind of get yourself in the game and go record some stuff, you know. And then once you kind of figure out what the heck you're doing and that gear eventually breaks or disappoints you like in a really bad way, (laughs) 
then you can just sell it and upgrade to the absolute best possible piece of gear that you think you'll ever buy in your life, right? So that way you're not going through that middle step of buying the middle gear. Because I feel like I've done that a few times and I feel like it's been a mistake just about every time. Um, I'll give a separate example. Cardioid pencil condensers, right? Mm -hmm. The fundamental basic building block field recording kit, right? Sure, yeah. Behringer makes a mic called the B5. Mm-hmm. They're like 30 bucks each and they sound pretty good, right? So that is the bottom end mic. I had mine and I dug them, but I had a hard time letting myself record with them because I knew what I paid for them. Mm-hmm. And that's a dumb reason to not So record. do you mean you didn't trust them exactly because you knew the price tag? <sighs> yeah. And also, because I was, you know, this was probably... 10 or 15 years ago too. They right. still make the mic. It's still 30 bucks. It's, it's still Behringer, right? Mm-hmm. So it is a $30 Behringer mic. And so it's hard as somebody that's aspiring to do good work mm-hmm. to roll out there with the $30 Behringer mic and say, hey, I'm doing good work. Mm, true, <laughs> right? true. Yeah. With that said, I think you can probably do good work with that mic. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure you could given the proper subject, right? Like, right. And technique, but, of course. And my point being, though, that if you get if you pick up a pair of those, you're not breaking the bank. Mm-hmm. When you go out and record every door in your house and mm-hmm. your car, and if you if you want to do weapon recording, go do weapon recording with them. Record, 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 record with those microphones. Do dialogue. Mm-hmm. Do everything. Record, 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 record with those microphones. Find where they're good. Find where they suck. Find where they help you, and find where you're having to work around what it is that they do. And mm-hmm. you'll find a lot of those things are not specific to the mic. A lot right. of the things, a lot of the things, are have to do with the polar pattern of the thing, and you know, and you know, the rest of your ergonomics of the rest of your workflow, uh, how you're monitoring it, whether you're choosing to monitor with headphones or not, and those kind of things. And because you're recording and recording and recording and taking stuff back and using it, at some point you're like, all right, I'm good, I'm ready to upgrade. Now I did that. The mistake I made was I rolled to the Rode NT5 from there because that's the next logical step up. Mm -hmm. And I ended up not liking those mics for a couple of reasons. One, they didn't sound a whole lot better than those stupid $30 Behringer P5s. No kidding, no kidding. They did sound better, but they Mm -hmm. didn't sound a whole lot better. And two, you know, at the office, I had access to some Sheps and some MKH-50s and Mm -hmm. some mics that are the next tier above. And in the end, I feel like I didn't spend good money on those NT5s for my personal rig. I feel like I should have jumped straight on up into the MKH-50s because that is one of my favorite mics on the whole planet. And that's what I should have gotten. And I guess uh, another thing is that you could tell the difference too, right? So maybe if someone is starting out, they may not notice like the nuances or what they're missing from like a more economical microphone. But by that point, right, your ear had developed, you'd use effects in a number of different ways where you could appreciate the 50, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the 50 just does cool stuff. (laughs) Great microphones. It's one of my favorite mics. You also did a really cool test between the line audio ones. Yes. And was it like, the 8040s? I, I can't remember exactly no, what it is, I, but... Uh, no, I think I did the 50s with that. Oh, the 50s yeah. with those, yeah. Yeah, I don't have 8040s, so mm. I'm sure I would love those if I had them. <laughs> but yeah, I don't I don't have access to those. So at the office, I have MKH-50s and I have the Sheps with 
the various capsules to them. At the house, I have the Line Audio CM3s and the NT5s, mm-hmm. which I never take out of the case anymore. The Line Audio ones are at a much different price point than the the Sennheiser. Yes. And I recall that you were impressed with the Line Audios. And one comment that you were making in that article was that it was not for the price. Let's say it was a tenth of the price. The sound quality wasn't a tenth of the sound quality of the Sennheiser. Right. Is actually actually better than that. You you're pretty impressed with those. I seem to recall. Yeah, and you know I've recorded with these mics a whole lot at this point, so I've got thoughts on the Line Audios. Right. <laughs> um, I definitely still recommend them. I definitely advocate for them. Mm-hmm. I would not put them at the top of the list of pencil condenser mics. Ah, uh, okay. Um, the way that I treat those mics, I treat them kind of like field-ready ribbon mics mm. because the transient response is much slower than, say, a Sheps mic. Ah, okay. Much slower. Mm-hmm. Um, they're darker than a lot of those other mics. Mm-hmm. They have lower output than a lot of those other mics. This is not to say that they're noisy. They're mm-hmm. actually, the self-noise of the mics is very, very good, mm-hmm. but you got to pair them with a good preamp. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a nice clean preamp, you get great. I, I've recorded the, the grass bending in the wind with those mics and it sounded great, Crazy. but you gotta, you gotta put a good pre on it. That can, that can put a lot of clean gain at them to, mm-hmm. to get really, really soft stuff. They also have a really, really wide polar pattern, wider than cardioid. Really? Yes. Okay. So if you, if you put them in ORTF, they're still wide. So you can actually run those things even wider than that. And you, and you still have coverage in the middle. That's a nice so, little benefit. Yeah, so they're really interesting. And so, and again, this comes back to what I've been doing with the Mix Pre 3 is I've found those, the Line Audio CM3s to be really, really cool utility mics that you can use to fill in texture and details mm-hmm. around other mics. So those things pair just beautifully with the 416. Nice. Because nice. the 416 kind of does the things that the CM3 does it. Super snappy transient response, mm-hmm. nice bright high end, mm-hmm. you know, kind of crispiness. So you got a nice crispy center and you got all this kind of warm, crunchy outside and uh, and they just add up to something that that just sounds killer when you put it in a mix. Now I want to hear these recordings. <laughs> <laughs> I think the football pads I'll probably release on Echo Collective. Um, nice. Nice. But I just, because they turned out so good, I'm like, all right, I'll put them out there in the world. I'll do it fine. <laughs> so, but that's kind of, that kind of ended up being as much a happy accident or consequence of the, of the new gear I got as anything. But, you know, when I talk about kind of philosophically as I approach the next equipment upgrade, the question is, what am I recording? What's my purpose? Mm-hmm. And am I trying to explore a different way of doing that? Or am I trying to dramatically upgrade my current way of doing that? So I can kind of go one of those two ways. So my next, my personal next home personal kit purchase is going to be a pair of super high-end Omni mics because I really, really want to do a lot more recording with Omnis. And I'm talking about more than ambiences, although I've gotten really, really good stuff. So, you know, a bunch Mm -hmm. of rallies I've taken, you know, I've taken some Omnis out and just basically put them on top of each other and just, you know, snapped them back to back in a single wind protection and it's been good. But I want to do more like prop fully and like if I had Omni mics out, for the um, for the football pads, I think I would have gotten some really good stuff there too. And the reason I think I can still get good prop recording, even with 
mics that are not isolating my props from the environment mm -hmm. is because part of what I'm trying to explore is the whole reason I recorded the pads in the outside in the first place, mm -hmm. incorporating the environment. And the way that I do that is with proximity to the prop as opposed to just whether I'm aiming it at the thing I'm recording or not, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So really, really focusing on the art of deciding how close to the thing I'm gonna put the mic. It's a simple thing, but man, with an Omni, that's the only variable you got, <laughs> you know? I, I think that also points out something really interesting too, that you have to think beyond the mic itself. There can sometimes be a reliance on thinking, okay, this mic is expensive, it sounds great. It's going to solve all my problems, but it's more oh, yeah. than that, right? It's like what you do, what you put into it as well. I think, I think it's very common to do that, to think like, here's this rock star microphone and it's just going to, you know, every field recording from here on in, is just going to be absolutely amazing, but it's more than that, obviously. Right. So like you said, I think a lot of us learned that in school and then forget it, right? Because you go to school and you have access to all of this gear that you'll never have access to again. Mm -hmm, and you're like, mm -hmm. look at this. It's a U87 through an Avalon. It's going to sound amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, on yeah. anything I put it on, it does not matter. If this mic's up in the room, it's going to sound amazing. Yeah. And to some degree, it'll always sound better than whatever else you had. But it's not. that's not the absolute answer to everything. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Man, I, I had one of those relationships with the U87 too. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, you know, we got the U87 in and, and I just, you know, the, one of the first voices I put on it was my own. Mm -hmm. And my voice is not complimented by a U87. It just does not sound good on me at all. Mm. TLM 103 is, is the mic for my particular voice. Mm. And for a lot of voices, um, I'm finding for just voiceovers, you know, but again, it was one of those situations where clients were dictating, hey, U87, right. Right. <laughs> that's right. what you're using. Right. You know, you're not telling me, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I'd, I'd put the U87 up and at some point those clients were making good decisions. And I was right. like, I get it. I understand now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would develop an internal bias against a mic based on it not being the right mic the first couple of times I blindly threw it up on something. Mm -hmm. I'm trying my best not to do that anymore, but it's definitely something that has occurred repeatedly <laughs> in my career. You know, you just try something and it doesn't work and then you have to give a mic a second chance sometimes in a different context. I think that's good advice. Now, Tell me, you mentioned you want some Omnis. Do you have any particular models that you have your eye on? Yes. Okay. So let me tell you about how I evaluate mics from afar, right? Yes. Because, yes. you know, I don't really get to just go buy a mic and try it and hate it and send it back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what I find a really good acid test to be is acoustic guitar. Interesting. I really, really don't like mic evaluations on the human voice because our brains are wired to just accept the human voice as sounding good, hmm. even when it kind of doesn't. And so I've seen, you know, I see a lot of videographers out there, you know, doing a shootout between, you know, a road mic and, you know, a DPA sure. or, you know, the Sheps or whatever. And streaming off of YouTube, that stuff, it doesn't sound like there's, you know, a 10, 10x price difference. But as somebody that has worked with those mics, I can hear it a little bit in the videos, but it's not as pronounced. And I think a lot of the reason is because it's the human voice. Mm. And so the reason I really like acoustic guitar for evaluating mics is because there are transients there. Mm -hmm. There is a very full sonic spectrum in an acoustic guitar. There's way highs and way lows, way more than in the human voice. There are resonances and resonant frequencies that happen in the acoustic guitar. It puts any given microphone through a much broader set of tests I guess, 
then kind of a rounded, nice and even mid-rangey human voice is going to do. So specifically for things like pencil condensers and stuff, I like using acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. So with that, the Omnis that I had my mind on at first were not the DPA loves, but the DPA pencil condensers that they have up. Right. So those are like, you know, a grand or something each. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't have that change in my back pocket, but again, I'm trying to, (laughs) I'm trying to decide what gear I want to aspire to. Right. That's, that's, that's a thing. You you just got to decide what am I even aiming at here? And when I went and found as many recordings as I could of that specific mic, I found it to be a little too cold and a little too kind of, not brittle, but clinical on acoustic guitar. And I didn't love it. <laughs> so Interesting. Interesting. I kind of auto know that I would love the MKH as an Omni, but I just love those mics. But kind of what I want to do was I'm as the whole purpose of me bringing Omni mics into my rig is to Mm -hmm. explore a different sound. And so because I already know and love the kind of big fat MKH sound, I I wanted to kind of go look for something that was different from that. I mean, I know that works, but I'm looking for something different. So where I'm landing right now and I'm looking for more samples of is the new Microtech uh, Gefell that came out, I guess, earlier this year. Interesting. I think it's the uh, uh, M320. So it's got kind of a high frequency bump on it, but I heard a couple of YouTube recordings of, you know, where there was about five of them on a band and some other mics that were up there too, but it sounded just killer. I'm like, all right, that might be the one. So that's the one I'm looking at now. But the I, I try and evaluate on acoustic instruments that show me transients and show me reverb tails and resonances and that type of stuff, because I feel like that's a much better way to evaluate a mic with with regards to all the things that it does than the human voice, for sure. Interesting. I just don't trust voice tests at all. Sounds like a good plan. So from afar, that's what I do. And then you just kind of roll the dice. (laughs) I guess that's true, right? And also for new people, that's difficult to, I try and rent when I can, you know? But yeah. for some people, it's it's not it's not possible. They may not have a rental place in their city or whatnot. So you're right. Sometimes you just roll the dice, right? I was lucky that the I got a loaner on the mix pre, right? But I was ready to roll the dice on that too. And it's pretty solid specs, right? So sometimes it's what yeah. you got to do. Sometimes a brand is, is is established enough to where you're like, oh, they got something new out. Fine, I'm getting that. For sure, for <laughs> sure, know? yeah. The nice thing about mics specifically though is that they hold their value. True. So if you buy mics and you feel like you've made a mistake, kind of like I do with the NT5s, I can still sell them and get you know a good chunk of my money back. Now, the, my problem right now is the NT5s together, my pair of them will add up to like a quarter of one of those Omnis that I want. So. <laughs> patience, Renee, patience. It'll come together. <laughs> but they'll, they'll, they'll start getting rolled up into the next piece of nice. gear. That's going to happen. Nice. <laughs> So how do you evaluate mics from afar outside of renting? Like, is there any specific kind of YouTube trick that you use or what else, what else are you looking I for mean, when you see people evaluating mics? Well, uh, sometimes I have clients that give me field recordings to, to clean on. Um, so that, yeah, that's, a good that's idea. really helpful. Um, because I, I've heard some mics that I would have never had access to. So I'll listen to the mics and sometimes they will be, you know, recording multi-channel sessions so I can compare them. And I've got this little cheat sheet of like what I think of various microphones or different observations. And I just, I've kept that going for years. So I, I do that. I also uh, follow a lot of people on SoundCloud as well. And even though SoundCloud previews are compressed, 
in some strange way. You can get an idea of the capabilities of a microphone, of the microphone that they're using. Of course, they're probably going to be mastered by the time they get on something like SoundCloud or however else something is going to be shared. But generally, other than those two ways, I will, um, I'll rent. I'll generally rent yeah. if I can. I mean, I've been lucky that in Toronto, there are a number of places that can get stuff in for you. So, but I'm, I'm very, I'm generally very cautious. Like I've had this Neumann since like 98 or 99, like a long, a long time. Right. So I don't move on from equipment that much. I like to hold on to one piece of gear and explore it as much as I can. Did your relationship with that mic kind of evolve over time? Did it start in one place and go to somewhere else? It definitely did. So when I heard it, it blew me away just because it has has so much richness and so much soundstage. Like you could hear so much depth in the recording. And I really liked how the Matrix box would allow you to change the pickup pattern. It could also be mid-side as well. So very, very flexible. However, as time has gone on, I mean, it, it may sound like a, a silly thing, but having that extra Matrix box in addition to the microphone can be a bit of a pain to kind of like lug that around and make it fit into your workflow. I still yeah. love the sound, but I'm looking for something that's a little bit quieter right now. I mean, it, it's pretty quiet as it is, but I find for myself, what I've been recording in the last couple of years, the thing that's probably the most challenging would be noise. So I want to find something that's about as quiet as you can for ambiences and try and go mm -hmm. with that. So I've been looking at the, the 8040s, 8040s in stereo. I still prefer the Neumann sound in general. It just seems richer, but uh, you can't beat the noise floor and just like the, the crispness and the clarity of the, the Sennheisers. So yeah, haven't fully decided yet, but uh, I've been keeping my eye on those. Yeah, so the point of that a little bit though is that even if you do have the, the funds and the means to rent a mic, you still can't really learn it in one session. You know, you can get an impression no of it. Way. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But yeah. I, I do also kind of love the idea of listening to other people's field recordings when they do document the mic. You're in a unique position because you have people sending you recordings all the time. But for people mm -hmm. that aren't, mm -hmm. there's a whole lot of communities out there. There's uh, the Sound Collectors Club and there's, you know, mm -hmm. other kind of field recording swapping setups that go on to where you can definitely use that to evaluate certain mics. There are some mics that I've heard out there just through those kind of channels that I'm like, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good. I want sure. one of those. For sure. You know, yeah. and there's some other ones where it's like, even if you're brand new, right? Your entire kit consists of the 1H5. You can still kind of get into those communities and swap sounds back and forth and, and listen sure. and evaluate yeah. other people's, other people's gear sure. and just kind of figure out, again, figure out what it is that you want to aspire to with regards to your equipment. I think that's a great idea. Another thing that I found recently is working on material that's poor as well. So sometimes in the past, I would have looked at like free sounds for something. If I'm using it in a project and you go to some website that has like a free sound, they don't have it anywhere else, you just grab it. You can really tell the nature of the equipment and the microphone not only by what the microphone and the gear does right, but what it does wrong. So it would be great if you're listening to perfect field recordings all the time. Sometimes remastering poor recordings can teach you a lot, right, about the gear. Yeah. So here's a counterfactual, right? So when I've said that the argument that I make is to get in the game, figure out what the hell you're doing, mm -hmm. and then go shoot for the stars on your next purchase. Sure. The argument that I've heard back is, well, if you don't know what you're doing yet, 
how do you know if what's disappointing you is the mic or your technique, right? And kind of my response to that was, it's never the mic. When you're just starting, you always suck at everything. Um, and that's really interesting because I think a lot of people when you're beginning are going to blame the mic, not themselves, right? Right. I mean, what am I doing wrong? I put a microphone up, I hit record. Yeah, and I mean, I like, distort, yeah, right? exactly, right? <laughs> so one other little kind of angle to take on this is, you see people come in and they have all this money sometimes, right? And they'll come in with a whole bunch of gear. Yeah, mm -hmm. I see it in photography too. Mm -hmm. Your budget is not going to make the recording for you. Another way to define it is the fact that somebody that is limited with gear, and you, you hear it as a euphemism all the time, you know, Eric Clapton on a, on a $30 mm -hmm. guitar will just wail on you and on his guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, it, but, it, but the other way to think about that is, yes, you might be limited by your budget, but people that aren't limited by their budget might not do as well as you if you put the time and effort in, right? Do you see people like that coming up? Definitely. So it's, I think it's easy to come with a lot of money and drop it and get some excellent gear and think you're going to get a certain result. And you know what? I'll even speak from my own experience. The first microphone I got was the 191, which is a very expensive microphone. And I think in some ways it worked against me because I was working with a microphone that produced very good recordings, but I didn't necessarily develop the skills of appreciating the way that audio is captured if I had started with less expensive gear and worked my way through it. Just the way that you said, you learned those $30 microphones, right? And you broke them and then you upgraded and now you can appreciate it. In a way, when I began my career, I didn't have that benefit. Now I've gone back and I've learned that kind of thing and I've kind of restarted. But I think sinking a lot of money into a kit right off the top it may work against your craft. And I just speak from, from experience, right? Like I'm still learning. And I think I go to, I prefer to go to weaker microphones at times because they will always teach me something, not only when you're trying to record, but when you're mastering them and you're curating them as well. There's something to be said about that. I definitely agree. Yeah. The basic fundamental skill set is the skill set that, that you can develop with any minimally capable tool set. And with microphones, I feel like the skill set really is about where to put the mic and how to work the thing that you're recording. Mm -hmm. And that is, mm -hmm. that's something that translates across every single step of gear is where do you put the mic? How far away do you put the mic? And how do you work whatever it is that you're recording? How do you, how do you sure. handle the pads or you know, run the machine or drive the car or whatever it is? Those things factor so much more into the actual recording than whatever your noise floor was. Um, it's not even funny. I completely agree. And I, I think it's natural that if you have the money, you're going to go for the best gear, right? It's not natural for someone to say, okay, am I going to cripple myself intentionally, right? Um, so I think it is natural for sometimes if you want to spend more to get better quality, that's a totally natural thought process. I just think it's a, if you go the other direction, there may be a greater opportunity to learn and develop your craft. I don't know. I even feel like, I think if you have the means, I think it's totally fine to go ahead and get the good gear. But what you have to do is you mm -hmm. have to keep in your mind the fact mm -hmm. that you still don't know what you're doing when you start at anything. True. You know, True. you just have to really come to even a really good gear setup with humility mm -hmm. about your ability to do good work with it because nobody starts out good at anything. And it just takes a long time to get good at anything, regardless of what gear you bring to the table. So like the, the mindset to educate yourself is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and also kind of humility about even the quality of the recordings that you're going to make with $5,000 worth of gear. Sure. You know, sure. if you got $5,000 worth of gear, I can still record 
better stuff than a beginner with $5,000 of the gear if, with my little, you know, $2,000 rig or $1,000 rig or with an H5 in a lot of cases, Absolutely. depending on what we're talking about. I mean, it's important, you know, as somebody at the, at the front end of the journey to try and gain perspective as to the length of the journey that you're on between the first recording that you make and the first recording that you love. Because sometimes that's a long way. If you bring too much ego into it, if you bring too much, I guess, theoretical knowledge before you've actually kind of developed your getting your hands dirty knowledge, sure. you're going to get humbled real quick. And sometimes you have to when you see problems coming in, you know, when something's spiky and it needs to be, you know, gritty or something sure, like that, sure. you know, and you know, one of the problems is that it's very difficult to have the language sometimes to describe things that are beautiful and things that are problematic with regards to field recordings. Right. And that's kind of why you have to put your hands on it and just do a lot. You know, one of my other thoughts that I try to tell myself sometimes, and I definitely tell other people is if you're not throwing out a certain percentage of recordings, you're just not recording enough. You know, if you're not just utterly failing periodically, you're not doing enough stuff, you're not learning, you're not moving forward. So you have to step into the process with the gear that you have with humility and with the understanding that the gear can probably do this fine. What has to happen is I have to learn how to do it. Even with bottom line gear, the quality of the equipment that you can buy now mm -hmm. for three and four and 500 bucks mm -hmm. from top to bottom is light years ahead of what the best people had absolutely. 30 years yep, ago. Absolutely. You know, but the best people 30 years ago still made amazing recordings. Right. True, true. And so we have to kind of step into what we're doing with that. Man, I saw some article about how they did the sound for the first Predator movie. And I was just shocked. No kidding, huh? <laughs> the workflow and the yeah. gear, you know, those dudes are rolling, you know, a single 416 and an Agra and, you know, cutting stuff on a moviola together. And they put together like that soundtrack that was like iconic in my youth. If you're out there with some gear that you think should be doing the job and the gear is disappointing you, you really have to, in my opinion, continue to work the gear and see where those limitations are and be honest with your evaluation of whether those limitations are with the equipment or with what you're doing with the equipment. I think that's a really interesting point because then it points back to the craft, right? Not the gear itself. And, you know, these days we see so many ads for like this microphone, this one's on sale. You look back, I, I sometimes think about field recording in terms of photographers like 70 years ago, let's say like Ansel Adams, like that guy he couldn't just pop out into the wilderness and take a photo just like that. He was hanging out for a long time, making sure he got the right shot. And then a lot of the work was done in the darkroom, right? I'm sure the equipment played a big role, but there's a thought process that went into it as well, right? So Yeah, so there's this library that I have coming out pretty soon called Aero Barrage, nice. right? So Ooh. yeah, it's going to be great. Oh, and it's so I, cool. I sent it to a guy that had bought some other stuff on, on Echo Collective and I just kind of gave him a preview of some of it. And he, he mm -hmm. sent me an email back just blown away. He's like, oh, this is the greatest stuff ever. And nice. the thing that I did on that particular library from a recording standpoint was very, very different from what you're going to learn reading blogs, even listening to this podcast, whatever. You know, mm -hmm. what I did was I put a couple of mics up and my intent was to do a shootout, right? So I had, you know, a TLM mm -hmm. 103 and a 416 up mm -hmm. on some prop foley. Both of them aimed straight at the prop right next to each other. Mm -hmm. Recorded the whole thing that way. Mm -hmm. Brought it into post. Panned them out left and right. 
and recognize that I love that stupid sound. Now, that is not a quote-unquote appropriate stereo microphone setup, <laughs> right? That is not going to give you a realistic yeah. stereo sound field. Mm -hmm. But man, it sounded good. And cool. some of the reason it sounded good was because those two mics are doing very different things. That's why I put two very different mics up, because I wanted to hear what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they ended up complementing in a way that I didn't predict specifically anyways, but in a way that I had to give myself the flexibility to recognize and to own, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and it's one of those, you know, when you think about the process, the process is I'm still learning. I'm still trying stuff. I'm still putting lots of microphones up and trying to evaluate things against each other, mm -hmm. but I'm having a thoughtful process with regards to, all right, TLM is a very specific large diaphragm sound. It's got a wide pattern. I'm thinking about pattern. That's why I was putting those two mics up because I've got this wide pattern one and I've got this narrow mm -hmm. pattern one. I've got them at a similar distance. I've got them both aimed at the prop. I want to hear what sounds, you know, what sound I like best. I put them up in the room. They both sound great. I pan them out. They sound even better. I'm like, okay, nice. I'm owning this. It's fine. You know? And so the point is that the process is to be thoughtful with it and be flexible with it and to continue to experiment and try stuff that you haven't necessarily already read, right? That's why we talk about learning mics and we talk about, you know, doing multiple recordings and mm -hmm. working with the mic over and over and over again so you can try things. You know, so I've made thousands of recordings with the 416 and I've made thousands of recordings with the TLM 103. I still didn't know mm -hmm. right off the bat which one was going to sound better on that particular prop. That's why I put them both up. Mm -hmm. It's about putting your hands on, on whatever gear you have and getting out there. Again, if your entire kit is at Zoom H5, there are certain things that you can make sound killer with the Zoom H5 with the built-in mics. For sure. They sound just sure. utterly great. And we had a little conversation to talk several episodes back about, there was one time I was out for batting practice. I wasn't at for batting practice. I was there to record a TV spot for the Rangers. And so, mm -hmm. but I'm sitting there in the dugout and typically in a major league game, they're running music for batting practice because they're trying to get the players all hyped up for batting practice, right? Well, because we're shooting a TV spot, we had them turn the sound off. Well, right. we're still waiting for camera and lights to set up and the guys are out there taking BP. Well, I've only got one mic. I've got my 416 and that is it. But I got, I've got probably 20 minutes between now and the end of the setup. So, you know, I went out there and rolled about, you know, eight or 10 hits straight at it. And then I started pointing the mic Amazing. around different parts of the arena and recording the reverb in different spots. And so by the time that everyone was set up, I had a, basically the equivalent of something like a six or eight mic shoot that I was able to lay back together and post and get this awesome, you know, bat sound that is an authentic major league baseball player in an authentic major league ballpark with the, with the appropriate reverb with a good mic, you know? Crazy, crazy. But that's not something that you'll see out there either. You know, that's not, no. there's, there's no kind of theory around that, but that just comes from being out there and doing it and doing it. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to put illustrations out there of what happens when you're always rolling and you're always thinking about what it is that you're rolling. And then what the synergy is between what you're doing out in the world and what you end up using back in post or in the game or whatever in your job. Because that's where all those connections start happening, right? Because I knew pointing the one mic at the bat, I wasn't going to get anything that I was going to love. And some of that was because I already knew that from past history, if I take something dry and try and put verb on it, I just never love it. I just don't love it. It doesn't work, yeah. So I knew I also needed to get verb. 
But the only reason I knew that was because I'd already done tried it the other way in the studio before, <laughs> you know? The point of this being that it's a process and it takes years and it takes humility and it takes observation and flexibility and a willingness to hit record on something and giving yourself the latitude to delete that sucker if it sucks, you know? Absolutely. And I think none of any of that that you mentioned has to do with circuit boards or transistors or anything like that. It has to do about the records themselves, yeah. right? And I think it's sometimes a natural inclination to think, hey, I dropped three or four grand into this kit. It's going to solve the problem for me. Yeah. But ultimately, I mean, it will help, right? But as you say, a different range of gear can do that. And when you tackled that situation, it was your experience and your craft that made it happen, right? Not the gear per se, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the gear was one mic, you know, at a 416. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. I only had the camera, <laughs> I'd roll to the camera, you know? Exactly. Because that was, because I recognized that as a very rare situation that I happen to be in. And so when you're in a rare spot, mm -hmm. man, you got to roll. <laughs> oh, sounds like fun. So anyways, well, cool, man. I know we've been running on this for a minute, so thank you very much for, for, for jumping on with me. I, I really love the way you think about things, and so I, I appreciate your insight into this stuff. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on the show. Cool. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Paul for jumping on with us today. Thanks to Stacey DePass for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders and go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. And you can support the podcast by shopping at tonebenderspodcast.com slash Amazon or tonebenderspodcast.com slash BH. Also, a kind of heads up programming note, you know, given SoundCloud's financial troubles, we're probably going to move the feed to something that is non-SoundCloud in the relatively near future. We'll keep everyone up to date when that happens and we'll let everyone figure out how to follow us there. So there you go. See you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the ToneBenders on Twitter or find ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneBendersPodcast.com.